Well, today we celebrate God's grace in sustaining Redeemer Church through uh, 10 years of ministry together. That is something to rejoice in. Not all of those years have been easy. Some have been very difficult and trying. But the Lord has been gracious and faithful to us through them all. He has, he has used them to prune us and even to deepen our love for Christ and for one another. Uh, we don't pretend at 10 years that we have arrived. We've got lots more to grow in as a church. And I find it rather fitting that we come this morning to a passage about the church. Of course, our passage is first and foremost about Jesus Christ and, and what he has done for us. But it's Jesus who then builds on his work by commissioning his disciples with a unique mission, power, and authority. A unique mission, power, and authority. And I want us to look at that today from John chapter 20, verse 19. And so if you have a Bible, let's head to John chapter 20. John 20, verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from many, it is withheld. And we pray together. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for your word. Uh, without it, we would, we would be blind, uh, wandering around in the darkness. But your word is a light unto our path. It, it is a lamp to our feet. Please guide us now into the truth and help us to see the beauty of Jesus and the incredible privilege we have of participating in his mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, Jesus commissions his disciples with a unique mission, power, and authority. Uh, that is clear in verses 21 to 23, and we'll look at those at some length in just a moment. But let me first point out something very crucial, very crucial for you to get. Before Jesus commissions his disciples into further work, he gives his disciples assurance of his finished work. Let me say that again. 
Before Jesus commissions his disciples into further work, he gives his disciples assurance of his finished work. We must keep that order in mind as Christians. Especially in our Western culture of do, produce, make it happen. It's so easy for us to, to forget that the root of all Christian doing is what Jesus has first done for us. Before Jesus tells his disciples what to do here, he reveals to them who he is, the crucified and risen Savior. Before Jesus tells his disciples how to serve, he reveals to them how powerful he is to save. Before telling us what to do for him, Jesus tells us more importantly what he has done for us. Look at how he comes to the disciples. Verse 19. Peace be with you, he says. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. What is the point of proclaiming peace over the disciples and showing them the wounds of his cross? The wounds, the nail from the nails in his hands, the wounds in his side from the spear. When have wounds like these ever meant peace? Now, one point is to show them that it's really Jesus. Remember, he was laid in a tomb three days prior. And here he's showing them that it's really him. He's really alive. And he's not a ghost. God raised his body from the grave. They can see the wounds. And that should calm their fears. But another point is to assure them that he, that he has secured the peace they needed through his death and resurrection. He has secured the peace they needed through his death and resurrection. How do we know Jesus is giving them such assurance? Well, we know this by the way the theme of peace develops throughout the Gospel of John. You see, according to John, the world is not a place of peace. That is, in the Bible sense of peace. In the Bible, peace has less to do with the absence of war and much more to do with all things relating to one another rightly under God's perfect rule. The world can't give us that kind of peace. Jesus says that much in chapter 14, verse 27. He says, not as the world gives do I give you peace. The world can't give this kind of peace where everything is rightly relating to one another under God's perfect rule. And, and even John himself is quick to remind us that such peace isn't present in this broken world. I mean, how could it be? The world has an evil ruler, the devil himself. He deceives people with lies and darkness. And instead of coming to God's light, people love the devil's darkness instead. Humanity also doesn't rightly relate to one another. Sin and the desire for self-glory divides people. 
And what's really beneath all the satanic lies and the division is that there's no peace between God and man. Sin separates us from God's presence and from His perfect rule. We are, as John 3.36 says, enemies of God because His wrath is upon us. There's no peace in this situation. No peace between God and man. No peace between man and man. And no peace between man and the world. How then does peace come to us? Well, John's story is that peace comes from outside the world in the person of Jesus Christ. Peace comes from God sending His own Son into the world to die on the cross and rise again from the grave victorious over this satanic and sin-darkened world. That's exactly how Jesus laid it out for the disciples in chapter 16, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me, in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world, he says. That statement came before he gave his life on the cross. And now we see him risen from the dead, showing them his wounds in his hands and in his side and saying, peace be with you. In other words, these wounds are wounds of victory, not of loss. Jesus has fought the war with the world's greatest threat to peace, sin itself, and Jesus has overcome it. Jesus has conquered the sin separating you from God and separating you from one another. Jesus has also conquered the ruler of this world all through the cross and resurrection. It's just like Revelation 5 where we get that scene where there seems to be no hope until the angel points John to the lion of the tribe of Judah and he says he looks to see the lion who has overcome and what do we see? A lamb as though it had been slain. In other words, the victory came through the cross. He carries these wounds in his resurrected body as a continual reminder that he has overcome the world and how he overcame the world through the cross and resurrection. And when you have Christ, you have peace with God and peace with one another and victory over the evil world ruler. That's what's behind his words, peace be with you. This is the kind of assurance Jesus imparts to his disciples, and it brings them great joy, verse 20 says. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Don't miss that. Peace and gladness in Christ precede any going for Christ. Right, Redeemers? You need to see your own vision statement as a church rising out of this text right here. We exist to delight in God's glory and declare God's glory to our neighbors and the nations. Gladness precedes going. Delighting precedes declaring. So before Jesus commissions his disciples into further work, he gives his disciples assurance of his finished work. Through the cross and resurrection, he 
secured peace for us. As I've heard our brother Wes put it before, the greatest thing you can do for God, Redeemer, is receive what God has first done for you. Christ has won you peace through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. But notice also that this, this peace that Jesus is speaking of here, it doesn't mean that it's time to kick up our feet and do nothing. Peace is definitely secured, but it isn't consummated. We live between this window of the resurrection and the second coming, right? It's secured, it's just not consummated yet. The cross has brought us peace with God, peace with one another, freedom from the devil's tyranny, but there are many others for whom that is not the case. The kingdom of peace has not yet arrived in full, and Jesus wants it populated with more citizens. And so Jesus commissions the church to bring his peace into the lives of others. That commission unfolds here in three parts. First, we see the church's mission defined. We see the church's mission defined. Jesus says in verse 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. He's saying our mission is comparable to that of the Father sending the Son into the world. It's certainly not the same. Jesus' mission is utterly unique because Jesus forever existed with God and became a man. That's, that's, that's not something we can replicate. But it is something our mission should point others to. How does that happen? Well, when you read through John's Gospel, it happens like this. We seek the sender's glory by selflessly entering and joyfully gathering. We seek the sender's glory by selflessly entering and joyfully gathering. This is exactly what we see in the, in the uh, mission that the Father sends Jesus on. This is our mission. We seek Jesus' glory in the same way that Jesus came seeking His Father's glory. How does Jesus pray just before His cross? In chapter 12, He prays like this, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus came seeking his Father's glory in all things. We imitate him in this. And how is it that Jesus glorifies the Father? Well, well he glorifies him by selflessly entering our world, selflessly entering our broken lives. His entry was selfless. You see, he reigned with God in heaven, and yet he humbled himself to enter our broken and corrupt world. He, he became like us, only without sin. He laid aside his rights to be seen as, as the only glorious one, and, and he entered, he became a, a servant, a, a man, to serve even to the point of death. Jesus glorified God by selflessly entering our world 
even when it would cost him everything. But he didn't stop there. He also laid down his life to gather people to God. Okay? He enters the life, for example, of a Samaritan woman. She's caught in adultery. He serves her with the truth. And then he gathers, many, he gathers her and many other people from her village. This is John chapter 4. Later on, John chapter 10, he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep to take it up again. But why is he taking up his life again? To gather the sheep under his care. Or then in chapter 12, he's the son of man being lifted up on a cross. Why? To draw all people to himself. So Jesus glorifies God by selflessly entering and then joyfully gathering Likewise, we, seek, we are to seek Jesus' glory by selflessly entering people's lives. Family, uh, friends, neighbors, co-workers, fellow students, acquaintances, no matter who it is, what they've been through, how they talk, where they live, what color of skin, we lay down our preferences, we die to our comforts, we crucify our prejudices, we plan our evenings. We, we listen to the waitress we, or, or the man three carols over in order to enter people's lives and point them to the truth of Jesus Christ. In order to give them the gospel. And then not stopping there because Jesus himself didn't stop there, we also joyfully gather them into Christ's fold. In fact, the way Jesus gathers people into his fold is through his church. Through his people going, preaching, uh, hearing repentance and the, offering the forgiveness of sins and then gathering them into Christ's fold, the church. It's in the church where Jesus then exercises His care for the flock and His authority over the flock. He gives people leaders and, and teachers. He gifts, he gifts each person to build up the whole and he, and he gifts the whole to build up each person so that not one of His sheep goes lost. We enter and we gather for the glory of God. And it's a joyful experience, isn't it? Jesus says so himself in chapter 4. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages, he says, and gathering fruit for eternal life. The fruit for eternal life is people. These Samaritan, this Samaritan village coming to Jesus. And this is... This is what he says, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. It's a joyful experience. So our mission is to seek Christ, the sender's glory, by selflessly entering and joyfully gathering people to God. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Redeemer, consider yourselves a sent people. Let that inform how, how you interact with others during the week. You're not a stagnant people, but a sent people with a mission. That informs how you, how you talk to others. It informs your, how you view your job situation and how you spend your money. Jesus has sent you to bring the Father glory through entering and gathering people to Christ. And that gives huge and eternal significance to every conversation you will have 
this week. Second, we see the church's power promised. We see the church's power promised. This is a great encouragement here because all you see is Jesus doing everything for us. He dies and rises again for us. And, and, and now, now we see he's giving, he gives us the mission. Oh, but, and by the way, here's the Spirit. He'll help you do the rest. This is just really an encouraging word from Christ as he sends them out. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians have understood this in a number of ways, especially when we read it alongside the gift of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. You know, one of the principles of interpreting Scripture is that Scripture helps you understand Scripture, and it never contradicts itself. Right? We know God's Word never contradicts itself, and so we have to, have to consider how the pieces fit together, the giving of the Spirit here and the giving of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So some have, have said that uh, this is simply John's Pentecost. Uh, this is his version of the Spirit's coming. Others have said that it's, it's, it's more like a mini outpouring of the Spirit here, and then we get a mega outpouring later on in, in Acts. But what both of these interpretations have in common is this. They are saying the disciples receive the Holy Spirit immediately as Jesus breathes on them. I'm not convinced that we should read it that way. First off, Thomas, who is also one of the eleven, one of the apostles, he's not there yet. He doesn't come until eight days later. So are we to say that, that, that he, as one of the eleven, just simply missed out on, on this particular special giving of the Spirit if it's happening through Jesus' breathing on them. Also, as we read the rest of chapter 21 in John's Gospel, we don't find the disciples boldly preaching in the face of persecution like we do after Pentecost. We find them fishing again. But most importantly, in chapter 7, verse 38, the giving of the Spirit is dependent on Jesus being glorified, and that includes His ascension to the right hand of the Father. And that hasn't happened just yet. So, what are we to make of Jesus breathing and saying, receive the Holy Spirit? I think it's best to view it as another acted-out parable that symbolically points forward to the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. An acted-out parable that is symbolically pointing forward to the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. We've seen Jesus doing things like this all over the Gospel of John. I mean, if you, if you think about the wedding at Cana and He turns the wine into water. Why is He turning the wine into water? Well, it's an, act, an acted-out parable. It, it's pointing forward to the new wine of the kingdom. Right? Or, or, or later on, when he raises Lazarus from the dead. It's another acted-out parable to, to point forward to his own resurrection and the resurrection of all God's people. Or, or even when he washes the disciples' feet. Why is he washing the disciples' feet? To point them forward 
to the cleansing and the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Christ. So also here, Jesus breathes and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And this is in anticipation of what he will give them at Pentecost, namely the Spirit. What's the significance of breathing then? You gotta wonder how it took place, right? Because he's like, is it like a yawn? He's like going up to each one. What's the significance of this breathing? There are two places in the Old Testament that help us understand what's going on, where this same verb appears. One is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. God forms man from the dust of the ground. But when he forms him from the dust of the ground, he has no life. But the text says that he breathes into him the breath of life. And it's God's spirit or his breath that animates the man. He becomes a living being. It's a picture of God giving life to the lifeless. The prophets then later on pick up the same language in terms of God making a new creation. Especially Ezekiel. And Ezekiel applies it, this, this, this new creation anticipation, he actually applies it to the nation of Israel itself. The nation of Israel sits dead in sin and actually separated from God in, in exile. And, and, and the text describes this nation as so dead, it's like a valley of dry bones. And so God comes to Ezekiel and he says, speak the word of the Lord over these dry bones. And, and, he, and Ezekiel does. And the Bible says there was a rattling and the bones came together, bone to bone. But then Ezekiel says, I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon these bones and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then God says to Ezekiel, Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And so Ezekiel does. And it says the breath came into them and they lived and they stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. The idea being in the same way God gave life to Adam, he was giving life to a new people, a new creation. The breath, in Ezekiel 37, verse 14, is then identified as God's Holy Spirit. He says, I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. Guess what happens next when the spirit makes God's people alive? They gather in from the nations under the rule of one Shepherd King David. And guess what God does through the Shepherd King? He cleanses them from sin 
and establishes an everlasting covenant of peace. You making the connections with John 20? Here is Jesus. He is the good shepherd, chapter 10 tells us. He has died to cleanse them from their sins. And he walks into the upper room and says, Peace be with you. And receive the Holy Spirit. He's promising to create the new people. And this is the start of it all. And what happens at Pentecost? When the Spirit comes, the Spirit comes and animates God's new people. They stream in from all the nations under Jesus' rule and give birth to what we now know as the church. That's you and me if you believe in Jesus Christ. He empowers us. He gives life to the lifeless. so that we fulfill the mission that's been entrusted to us. So we're not alone in this, Redeemer. Jesus didn't send us in our strength, but in the Spirit's strength. And the Spirit indwells every Christian such that not a single disciple can say that he or she can't be a competent minister of grace. I'm going to say that again. Not a single disciple of Jesus can say that he or she can't be a competent minister of grace. So that entry I was telling you about a minute ago, it's oftentimes uncomfortable for you, awkward, maybe threatening to some of your introvertedness or whatever or fears. Jesus gives gives the Holy Spirit in order to make you a competent minister of grace that you might enter, that you might have the strength to enter, that you might not have that fear to enter and bring Christ into people's lives. So let that encourage you this morning, church. Let that encourage you in the midst of all the inadequacies you see in your life and even in this church as a whole. Let that encourage you as we look ahead as a church with faith in Christ to seek and plan what God wants to do uh, through us in this church and in this city and beyond. Even when all you can see right now are inadequacies, the Spirit is able to make us all competent ministers of grace. And it's sheer pride for us to say that He can't. He created the world. He helped a speech-impaired Moses lead God's people through the wilderness. He empowered a ruddy little shepherd boy, David, to lead the nation of Israel. He raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And He already did the much greater miracle of bringing you from death to life when you heard the gospel and believed. I think He's got you covered in this. He's got all of us covered. So receive the Holy Spirit as God gives Him. We live on this side of Pentecost. Live in dependence on His grace. Pray for more of the Spirit to fill us and give us everything we need for the mission. Got a little sticky note on my computer screen. And there are three things that sit up there on the very top that I long for 
for this church in particular, and that is the gospel preached, prayer is fervent, and everybody has renewed life in the Spirit. Make those your prayer. Make, make renewed life by the Spirit your prayer that we might have everything we need for the mission. Third and last here, we see the church's authority established. See the church's authority established. You're probably going, yeah, he's speaking to ten disciples here. Where are you getting the church? I'll bring that up later. This connection between the disciples and the church. Right here, we're going to see in verse 23, the church's authority established. He says this in verse 23, if, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now we should clarify a few things up front. To begin, only God can forgive sins. That's made explicit all over the Bible, and it's also implied here by the, the passive voice they are forgiven. It is withheld. Forgiveness is ultimately in the hands of God. We should also remember that God forgives sins based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. Uh, we were already told in John chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or chapter 8, verse 24, tells us that, that unless you believe in Jesus, you will die in your sins. But if you believe in Jesus, God will forgive you and, and you won't perish. So God forgives sins based on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone. But one more thing we should remember is this. Jesus' disciples stand as his representatives on earth. You see, Jesus is in the process of ascending into heaven. But he leaves this band of disciples on earth as his authoritative representatives. Even before this point, Jesus has already told them, whoever receives the one I send receives me. So here we have Jesus saying, as the Father sent me, so I send you. He's sending them out. Earlier in chapter 13, verse 20, he said, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the Father who sent me. So insofar as the disciples follow Jesus and uphold his word, they represent Jesus' authority on earth. You reject Jesus' disciples, you reject Jesus himself. Not because of anything inherent to the disciples, but because of the authority that's bound up with Jesus and the gospel message that he entrusts to the disciples. So only God forgives sins. He does it through Jesus' sacrifice and Jesus' disciples represent Jesus' authority on earth. What we're finding here in verse 23 are all three of those realities coming together just spelled out in terms of extending and withholding forgiveness. In other words, the disciples extending and withholding forgiveness on earth becomes a visible picture of what stands true in heaven. I'll say that again. The disciples extending and withholding forgiveness on earth come, becomes a visible picture of what stands true in heaven. 
The idea is declaring on earth what heaven itself is already saying. You do or you do not have forgiveness based on your response to the message entrusted to Jesus' disciples. There's no middle ground. No middle ground. Forgiveness and judgment come in the same gospel message. To receive it is to have the door flung right open to forgiveness. To reject it is to remain in your sins unforgiven. Jesus has, has given us no authority to say that someone is forgiven unless that someone repents and believes the gospel. The same authority plays out, we see, in Matthew's gospel, too, but in terms of church discipline. John's focus here is, is how, the, how Jesus' authority plays out in evangelism as we're on mission. Matthew shows us how Jesus' authority plays out in church discipline. For example, in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, if somebody in the church refuses to repent uh, from their sinful offenses after being patiently confronted and publicly rebuked, Jesus says that we must treat them as a Gentile and tax collector. It's a way of saying they are to be put out of the church, out of the local church, treated as an unbeliever that, that has no forgiveness unless they turn to Christ. And then Jesus closes in Matthew 18 with words very similar to what we find here in John. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it's in this context of forgiveness of sins. This binding and loosing is referring to forgiveness. So again, we see here a representative authority, uh, whereas in John chapter 20, it's limited to, the, um, to those 10 or 11 appointed disciples. Uh, Matthew 18 is actually broadening that authority out to the entire local church assembly. So a representative authority where our actions on earth serve as a visible theater, so to speak, to what is true in heaven. Now, here's where I want to say, how do you go from disciples authorized by Jesus to the local churches that they planted in, in which we are in right now, a local church? How do, you get, how do you get there? I should make clear here that there is a difference between the authority of these initial disciples in particular and our authority as a local church today. The authority of these disciples and our authority are not equivalent. One stands upon the other. Our authority as a local church represents that of Jesus himself insofar, get this, insofar as we abide by the disciples' words that are preserved right here in the scriptures. Does that make sense? You tracking with me? The further we stray from the words in Scripture, the less authority we have to say anything on God's behalf. 
But where we stick to the teaching of Jesus and his disciples, we can speak and act with heaven's authority itself on earth. So whether it's in evangelism, as we see in John 20, or church discipline, like we see in Matthew 18, Jesus' disciples and Jesus' church have authority to extend and withhold forgiveness based on people's reception or rejection of Jesus in the gospel. That teaching totally flies in the face of the default individualism characterizing a large portion of our Western culture. Particularly, it defies the assumption that no one but ourselves can speak with authority regarding our relationship with God. Some Christians have so breathed in that air of self-autonomy that they avoid Jesus' authority altogether by standing clear of the local church. And those who do blur the lines of God's visible kingdom that gathers now in local churches with definable boundaries. Jesus has chosen to exercise his authority through the local church as the local church carries the gospel into the world. If you are someone who remains indifferent to the local church, then you remain indifferent to Christ. And I would urge you to find a local church in which you can actually be held as an accountable representative of Jesus. Others of you are part of a local church, but the same individualism is hurting you. You've testified to your faith in Christ. The church has affirmed your salvation through baptism and membership. But over time, you've wrestled with doubts about your salvation and even find it hard to listen to other Christians testify of the fruit of the Spirit they see in your life. You continue serving, but because of your individualism, it's very easy for you to ignore, brothers and sisters, and instead listen to your own doubts, become self-absorbed, and reject the gift of the church's affirmation. Now, to be clear, if you're manufacturing a false image of yourself and hiding your sins from others in the church, you're not really opening yourself to the church's true affirmation. You're deceiving yourself and you're deceiving others. It's time for you to walk in the light. But for those of you who are being honest with where you're at and desire to love Christ, listen to your brothers and sisters' affirmation of the forgiveness you have in Christ. Listen. Don't underestimate the grace of God in the corporate affirmation of the local church. Also, don't treat your role flippantly when we bring new people into the local church. This is not to be taken lightly if we are representing heaven on earth. We represent Jesus when announcing the forgiveness of sins. And further, we announce forgiveness to, to all people without distinction. We go to a lost world. We hold out the cross of Christ to everybody and say, this forgiveness is for you if you will only believe. All you have to do is receive it. And God will forgive all of your sins. Jesus' blood can cleanse you and, and wash away your guilty stains no matter what you've been involved with. It's an incredible privilege to take the King's message and with authority say, you are forgiven if you, take, if you make this blood your own. 
It's an incredible privilege to fling the door of forgiveness wide open for all who believe. It's also an incredible privilege to bring the same message of forgiveness to one another inside the church. We sin. We sin against God and we sin against one another. We say all kinds of stupid things and we think all kinds of perverted thoughts. And when we don't pretend like we don't have sin, but confess our sins to each other, John tells us that we can speak forgiveness over each other. This is how he puts it later on in, in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 9. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all of our sin. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I got an email from my brother a while back who had sinned against me, and he confessed that sin to me. And it was such a joy to be able to write back to him quoting this text and saying, Brother, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's really good news to preach over each other all the time. And I have to say, there is something very good about our brothers and sisters from the more liturgical traditions of the church. They usually have something in their uh, corporate gatherings called the conf corporate confession of sin and something called the, the assurance of pardon after that corporate confession. And usually one of the ministers will get up and say something like, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then I can assure you, based on the sure promise of the word, that your sins are forgiven. Such words are backed by the authority of Jesus himself. And we ought to grow in our appreciation for them and our role in this right here of what he's saying. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. We need to hear these words of forgiveness often. Today, in the Lord's Supper, we even get a tangible reminder of the forgiveness we have received in Christ Dale, you get to come in a few minutes and speak forgiveness over brothers and sisters this morning. The blood of Jesus and the authority of God's word stand behind you as you give us the bread and the cup. As Jesus himself said that this cup is given as a new covenant in his blood, it's poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many So, come and lead us now in the supper, and then we'll share in another love feast at the park.